0: I have to tell you, I, I am so excited about this morning, and I've been excited about this sermon for, I, th- no joke, we're going on at least a year, because when Pastor Chris and I started talking about doing a sermon series through the entire storybook of Scripture, where we start in Genesis and we end in Revelation, the moment we started talking about this, I called dibs on this sermon, Okay? I love the book of Judges. This book is so good. If you've never read Judges, you are missing out. And if you're a person that tells me in the slightest way that you find the Bible boring, you have not read Judges. Okay, this book is great. And so this morning, not only are we going to be looking at the book of Judges, we're going to be looking at one of my all-time favorite Bible stories, okay? And it comes out of Judges chapter 3. So if you want, I just want to invite you, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. And while you're opening, let me give you some background on the book of Judges, okay? Because it'll help you to make sense of the book a little bit as we go. The first thing is this. Judges picks up immediately where the book of Joshua left off. In the book of Joshua, we find that Israel has finally entered into the promised land. They're, they're taking it over. They're settling. They're kicking out the tribes of Canaan that had kind of settled in the land. And then we're told at the very end of the book, as Joshua dies, Joshua was the leader of Israel. He took over after Moses, right? Right. Um, Joshua tells them, after I go, you need to continue kicking out these other tribes of Cana. You need to make sure that they are out of the land. And the reason Joshua says that is because if you don't do it, if you don't kick them out, you're going to begin to look like them. And you're going to adopt their practices. And as we saw in Joshua, these people were really corrupt, They had all sorts of sexual issues. They were into child sacrifices. Moral corruption was their MO. They were messed up. And so Joshua says, you need to keep kicking them out or you're going to become infected. The problem is, though, as soon as we enter into the book of Judges, Israel gets complacent. As soon as they do, they get lazy, And they stop driving out the people. They go, well, I don't need to keep going. Like They're like a mile away. They're so far from my farmland. I don't need to go fight them. And so Israel gets lazy. And in getting lazy, they take their eyes off of God. They forget who God is. They forget what God has done for them. They forget what God has told them to do. And as soon as they do this, they begin to sin. And as soon as they begin to sin... God says, fine, go ahead, see how that works out for you. And consequences enter the picture and Israel begins to suffer. And at this point, God then has to come in and send a savior. And you would think, well, good, Israel will learn their lesson the first time. No. But this triggers a whole series of events that continues to spiral. In fact, look at this screen because I think it does a really good job explaining this cycle And I want you to just notice that this is truly a downward spiral in the book of Judges, meaning every time the cycle reemerges, it's worse than the time before. Israel just doesn't learn their lesson. And the cycle goes like this. Israel starts off in a time of peace. Things are good. Like at the end of Joshua, Israel has conquered the land. Things are going well for them. And you're thinking, hey, this is great. This is great. And then they get complacent. And they get lazy and they begin to go, ah, I could do whatever I want. Which means, God, I don't need you. I'm going to do what I want. And so they sin. That's essentially the definition of sin. Well, their sin then leads to oppression because God goes, fine, you don't need me. Let's see how that works for you. You don't need me. You, you got this figured out on your own. You're good. All right, let's see how that works. And then immediately what happens every single time, one of these tribes that Israel was supposed to kick out of the land, they come and conquer Israel. And they oppress them for 20, 30, 40 years sometimes. And Israel suffers. Finally, after X amount of years, Israel realizes how stupid they were. And they turn to God and go, God, where are you? God, why are you doing this to us? God, why are you doing this? And the whole time you're thinking, seriously, people? Seriously, what's wrong with you? But God then in his mercy and in his grace will then raise up a deliverer who in the book of Judges is called a judge. And that judge will lead Israel to a time of peace which is good for X amount of years until Israel then sins again and the whole cycle kicks off. It's incredibly repetitive. Incredibly repetitive. Last thing before we read the story. When I say judge in the book of Judges, I don't think courtroom. You know, I, when I was thinking about you know, the long robe and the puffy wig, because I like British TV, um, and they have the puffy wigs, it's not so much courtroom judge as much as it's like local tribal chieftain. Think of it like the guy who leads them into battle or the guy who kind of settles local disputes. That's who a judge is. Okay, with that, you ready? Favorite story. Favorite story, Judges chapter three, are you there? You can get there in the Bibles and in the pew, but also on the Bible app. But Judges chapter three, buckle up. I'll just tell you right now, Haley is in this room right now. Haley's in my Bible class. We covered this like a month ago. Haley knows exactly where this is going. Because I love this story, and she's already giggling. So, (laughs) buckle up. All right, here we go. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Okay, so you see this. Israel sinned. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, then God allows the consequences of that sin, which is Eglon, to come and conquer them. All right, verse 16. Uh, Nope, that went way too far. 13. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is also known as Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Years, 18 years they suffered in oppression until they began to cry out to God. Verse 15, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and so he raised up a deliverer. This time it was a guy named Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjaminite. Okay, fun, random trivia. Okay, I, I took a lot of Hebrew, and I get to throw it out rarely. Here you go. Benjamin, Benjamin means son of the right hand. So in Hebrew, this sentence is actually kind of a play on words. It's the left-handed son of the right hand. It's just... I'm so glad Chris Hankins is here today because nobody else got that joke. All right, here we go. The Israelites sent Ehud with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, Um, and now Ehud made a double-edged sword. It was more of a shiv, about a cubit long, which he strapped to the right thigh, under his clothing. Okay, a cubit, by the way, is the length from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. That was how they would measure things. Okay? So it's about this long, and he strapped it to the inner leg. This is important. This is incredibly significant detail, because what would happen is, in our day, when you go to the airport, you go through a scanner, right? you got to make sure you don't have that. Well, in that day, it was a pat-down. Okay? In that day, if you were going to go to see somebody important, you went through a pat-down. Well, typically, everyone in that culture, like in our culture, was right-handed. And so if you were going to sneak a blade in, you would have done it on your left leg because you would just pull it out and go this way. This would be incredibly awkward and very dangerous. Okay? <laughs> Don't have to explain that. Incredibly awkward and dangerous. So what happens is Ehud is able to sneak in a blade on his right leg because he's left-handed. And so they only would have pat down his left leg. And so he's able to get into the king with a weapon. Okay. Okay. There you go. Um, Verse 17. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who just, you know, by the way, was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, the king sent them on their way, those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself, meaning Ehud, went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. Okay, the, the image is this. Ehud originally went with a group of guys to deliver tribute They then leave the presence of Eglon, but Ehud goes, oh, I got one quick thing. Let me run back real quick and tell you something. And the king's like, I got a special message for you. And the king just kind of was all pompous. And he goes, the king said to his attendants, leave us. (laughs) a special message for me. (laughs) Leave us. And they all left. And then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. All right, this is intense. This drama is so good. A message from God. And the king, again, all pompous, he stands up. Oh, what does God have to say to me? And then Ehud reached with his left hand and drew the sword from his right thigh and he plunged it into the king's belly. The handle of the blade sank in after the blade and the king's bowels then discharged. Yeah, it's getting good. It is getting good. If you're not sure what that means, it means he pooped himself. Okay, there you go. Ehud did not pull the blade out, and the fat then closed in on over it. Then Ehud went out through the porch. He shut the doors, the upper room behind him, and locked them. So Ehud stabs this fat king. He goes over. He locks the door, and then he sneaks out the side door. Okay? The attendants are then going to show up and find the door locked. After he had gone, the attendants came, found the doors were locked to the upper room, and they said, Oh, the king must be relieving himself in the upper room of the palace. Why do they say this? Oh, because it smelled like poo. And they're just thinking, Oh, he must just be going to the bathroom. And then I love this. I love this. This is those moments in scripture that you're like, Oh, thank you, author. Thank you. They waited to the point of embarrassment. How long was that? 20 minutes? 30 minutes? I, mean, I don't know where you... Okay. Okay, here we go. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when the king did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and they saw their lord had fallen dead to the floor. But during this time, while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed the stone images and escaped to Sarah. Sarah. When he arrived there, Ehud blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading. He ordered, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down, took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a single person escaped. And on that day, Moab was then made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. This is a good story. This is a good story, but you see the cycle, right? You saw the cycle, right? Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That led to oppression, which led to 18 years of suffering. God then raises up a judge. He raises up Ehud, who then rescues Israel and takes him into a time of peace. You would think that'd be enough, but no, the cycle just continues to spiral and spiral and spiral. And then we're introduced into the characters of Deborah, of Gideon, of Jephthah, of Samson. And the thing you need to know if you look at this screen is every single subsequent judge after Deborah is worse than the one before. Because what happens in the book is it is truly a downward spiral where Israel forgets who they are and essentially becomes more and more like the people of Canaan. They become infected. And so first we see this in the person of Gideon. Gideon is, for all intents and purposes, a giant pansy. A giant pansy. He does not trust God because he does not remember how powerful God is. We get the impression as you read the story of Gideon that he forgets what God has done in taking Israel out of Egypt. He forgets that God has already worked in the book of Joshua, and he doesn't trust how powerful God is. So he puts him through a series of tests, a series of tests. This is where the fleece blanket, remember this story? The fleece blanket, Gideon says, okay, God, if you really are powerful, I'm going to lay out this blanket. And the next morning, I wake up, I want the blanket to be dripping wet, and I want the ground to be dry. And so the next morning, Gideon wakes up, and the ground is dry, but the blanket is soaking wet. And Gideon goes, okay, that's nice, but he's thinking, well, that could have happened by nature, right? You've you've seen this before. So he goes, okay, now, now to prove just how powerful you are, I want the opposite to happen, The next morning, I'm going to lay out my blanket. I want the ground to be sopping wet, and I want the blanket to be dry. And so it does, and it happens, and God proves that he is powerful, that he is the God who controls the elements of the earth. And so Gideon goes, okay, and trusts God, and things go quite well until the end of Gideon's life when he, you know, just kills a bunch of his kinfolk. Then it gets worse. Because then we're introduced to the guy named Jephthah. And you probably don't know a lot about Jephthah, but what you should know is Jephthah was a mighty warrior. He was a well-known, well-respected warrior who did great things in battle. Until one day, Jephthah gets into a tough battle and then he makes a deal with God. He bargains. And he goes, God, if you get me out of this, I will give you anything you want. In fact, I will give you the first thing that runs out of the door of my house when I get back from battle. So Jephthah goes on, he wins the battle, and he's on his way home. And what is the first thing to run out of his house? His daughter. His young little daughter. And so Jephthah goes ahead and sacrifices his own child because Jephthah believes that is what God wants. Jephthah has completely forgotten the character of God. It's, wor- it's bad that Gideon forgot how powerful God is. But now Jephthah's completely forgotten the character of God. But the story gets worse because by the time you get to our boy Samson, man, things are bad man, Samson is a nut job, okay? Samson shows complete disrespect for both his own people and his God. He, he wants nothing to do with them. And the way we know this is because first, the very first thing Samson does is we're told his parents dedicate him as a Nazarite. It's a fancy word. It just means he's set aside for God. And because he's set aside for God, there's three things Samson cannot do. He can't cut his hair. You know that. That's kind of famous from this story. Can't cut his hair. He also can't touch dead bodies. And third, he can have nothing to do with vineyards. Nothing to do with wines, grapes, stuffed grape leaves, anything like that. Balsamic vinegar, nothing. He has to avoid it. Okay? But how do we know that Samson shows complete disdain and disrespect for God? Because the moment we are introduced to adult Samson, he's on his way to marry one of the Canaanite women, Because he says, I don't care about Israelites. Who cares? I'm just one of them anyways. And then more than that, while he's on his way, you know what route he chooses? Oh, you know, the local vineyard where he's just walking through. He just wants to touch the grapes. What's wrong with that? Popping in his mouth every now and then. But more than that, he then comes across a dead lion in the grape yard, or in the, the grape yard, the vineyard where apparently bees had turned it into like a a little hive and there's honey, and so he gets hungry, so he touches the dead lion carcass. Now, it, it gets way worse as the story continues to progress, but let's just suffice to say that Samson is then seduced into his final haircut, okay? And that's essentially strike one, strike two, strike three. And so God goes, enough with you, and God pulls his spirit from him, and Samson is then rendered impotent. God takes his power away, and Samson's got nothing, and he's left as this impotent rag doll for his enemies to play with. Until in the very end, and I don't know, you could call this a desperation of faith, but really it's more of like faith meets blood rage. And Samson just kind of goes crazy and then rips down the house on all of his enemies and ends his life in violent mass murder. It's bad, but it gets worse. Because as the cycle continues to spiral, as we get to the end of the book, Israel looks no different than Canaan. And the way we know this is because their last two stories are really bad. They're really bad. Because the, last, the second to last story is about a guy who inherited like X amount of silver and then he takes that silver and he makes it into an idol. And you know who he makes that idol for? Yahweh. Well, this is God. This is the Yahweh. And then he even hires himself a Levite to go and serve as his own personal priest. Well, that is until one of the other Israelite tribes hears about this statue to Yahweh and they want it. So they go and steal the statue and then use it to justify their own acts of mass murder. It's bad. But the last story, the last story, I don't talk about in my Bible class, okay? You're welcome. The last story is so bad, you really just have to go and read it for yourself. And this is my way of getting you into the scriptures after you read. But it's so bad that you look and you realize that Israel has forgotten so much who they are that they have become exactly like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are no different. This book is an incredibly depressing decline from the book of Joshua. Israel has forgotten their God, Israel has forgotten who they are. It's bad. And they've not only forgotten, but they've absorbed these evil practices. You've seen it. The the child sacrifice, the moral corruption, the sexual promiscuity. All of this is what happens at the end of the book. And some of you are thinking, why on earth do you like this book? (laughs) What is wrong with you, John? It's a fair question. And here's why I like this book. I like this book for two reasons. Because more, I mean, yeah, there's great stories in it. But more than that, this book, more than any other book in all of scripture, clearly reveals to us humanity's nature and God's nature. This book, more than anything else, reveals to us our own character flaws and God's. Not his flaws, but God's character. Let me explain. In this book, when you see this cycle continue to go on, when Israel enters into a time of peace, they always, 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 always forget God. You and I, we're no different. We may not think we're as barbaric as the people of Israel. We may not be as stupid as they are. You forget God in the good times too, don't you? When things are going bad, what do you do? God, where are you? God, I need you. God, why are you doing this to me? But in the good times, eh, what God, what God? We allow our eyes to wander from God, we take our eyes off of him, we forget about him, we turn from him, and more than that, we begin to decide what is right and wrong. The Bible calls this process sin. Look, sin is one of those overly hyperized spiritual terms and people go, oh, it's sin. In a very simplistic way, sin is simply those moments in our, our lives when we take our focus off of God and we begin to shift to a focus of ourselves. Where we begin to realize God doesn't, isn't the one that makes rules. We determine what is right and what is good. And we set up our own ways of living. The problem with this, though, as the book of Judges lays out so clearly, is that when we sin when we turn our eyes from God, there are always consequences. And those consequences are always damaging both to us and to others around us. When you sin, and you know this, when you sin, when you turn from God, when you decide, I don't want to do what God wants, I want to do what I want, you fall into this habit of this cycle, and there's always consequences in your marriage. Consequences in your workplace, Consequences in your own soul, if you will, you feel torn in your head and you just feel discouraged. Consequences in your neighborhood. We see ripples effect of sin all over the place because sin, be it your anger issues, your pride, your lust, your jealousy, your your insecurities, your whatever, sin is insidious and destructive. And if the book of Judges makes anything clear, it's that you and I are addicted to it. We're addicted to it. We are stuck in it. There is literally nothing you can do to get out of your sin. You're stuck in this cycle. Sure, you may have your good days. Try and last a few hours. I'll give it to you. Make it a week without saying, go ahead, prove it. If you don't believe me that you are not stuck in some cycle of sin, go ahead. By your own power, do it. I will get out of your way. And in fact, if you could do it by next Sunday, I'll talk to Pastor Chris. and be like, we have a saint among us, a holy one. Pastor Chris, you need to sit down and let this person go and speak about how we are to live. But I know for a fact it's not going to happen. You know it. You can't even make it a day. A few hours. Some of you are thinking, man, I just sinned right now. We do it. We're stuck in sin. And sin is destructive and sin damages us and our neighbors, our families, our friends constantly. But the second thing the book of Judges teaches us is that even though we are stuck in this cycle of sin, we serve and worship a God who cannot tolerate seeing his people suffer. We worship a God who is quick to act and full of grace and mercy and who will constantly step in to save and rescue his people. And this isn't just seen in the book of Judges. Because this, this cycle, this is the cycle of the Old Testament. That's why the book of Judges is so important. Because you could use this cycle, this thing, any book you're reading, you're going to see this happen every single time. And this climaxes, this cycle of deliverance climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, the cycle is once and for all permanently broken. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. And here's how. Because in his, in his book to the Romans, in his letter to the Romans, Paul lays this out beautifully. It's a very long book, but Paul in this book makes it very clear that Jesus came and he broke this cycle. What Paul makes very clear is that you and I were addicted to sin, that you and I have no option but to sin. We are in this cycle and there's nothing we can do about it. It is our habit. It is our nature. It is all we know. And apart from Christ, there's literally nothing you can do about it. Paul says in Ephesians, you are dead to sin. You are slaves to sin. You have no option, no power over sin. You're lifeless to it. But in Jesus, Paul makes this very clear. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. He stepped in and changed the cycle because sin no longer leads to oppression because the consequences of our sin were nailed to the cross. The consequences of our sin, our actions, our mistakes were taken upon him and done with. They were killed. They were crucified. It's over. And you and I are now free from our sin We no longer have to have this. Paul goes on to explain that we're free from this. Jesus says when he stepped in to do this, he created an alternative path, and that alternative path is life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes to keep you in this cycle. But I have come, why? So that you may have life and have it to the full. That you may have life and have it to the full. And so what Paul then goes on to explain is how we live into this life. Before I get there though, I want to acknowledge, there are some of you in this room, you're like, yeah, amen, this is my life. You get this. You have seen how Christ has stepped into your life and broken this cycle. Some of you were stuck in addictions. Some of you were stuck with all sorts of other baggage that you could not break on your own. And when you put your life in Christ's hands, when you began to trust Jesus, you saw a radical shift. And because you saw this radical shift, you are truly keeping your eyes on Lord. You are remembering what he has done for you. And every day, you are experiencing the blessings of that in your marriage, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, wherever. You're living it. And I know this because I've had conversations with you in this church where you go, man, you know what, if this is as good as it gets, I'm happy. Like, this life is good. This life is good. God's been good to my family. God's been good to me. And they're living it. That is the life God intended for all of us. And if you're that person, I just want to encourage you. Continue to share that testimony. I want to encourage you because I think what you're going to show us more than anything else is what a daily life, what it looks like to daily focus on Jesus. Because we're going to get to this in a second, but that's the key. How do you do this? You don't forget who God is. You consistently say, who is God? How do I follow him? And there are people in this room that do that. You need to share that story. At the same time, I also recognize there are people in this room who have never experienced this life. There are people in this room who have, who have maybe even come to church every now and then, maybe haven't come to church in a long time, and realize as I'm talking about this cycle, you're like, yeah, I, I, I live that. You have moments of peace. Like, I don't, I don't want to take away from this. You recognize in your own life, you experience moments of this peaceful life that you were created to live because of God's grace in your life. I would, I would assume that those moments when you feel like, man, life is going really good is probably when you're serving somebody else and you feel like, oh, this is, this is good. Or in those moments when um, you feel like, you're, you, you know, you're doing your thing at work and you're like, this is what I was created for. Like, I this is good, like, I, I didn't expect to do this, but I really enjoyed that. You get glimpses of this life that Christ offers you. But as soon as you go home, you slip back into this habit. You slip back into this addiction and only last this little short time because you're so stuck, be it because of your pride, your anger issues, your addictions, your insecurities, whatever, that you can't break this cycle and there is something that triggers it for you every time and you forget who God is because maybe you didn't even know there was a God who loved you. And what you need to understand is God sees you in this cycle. He sees your pain, he sees your suffering, he sees your frustrations and your hurts. And he is acting to save you. He is acting to offer you a way out. All you have to do is express faith. Look, faith is another one of those words we use a lot in church that has kind of lost its meaning. Faith simply means to trust him. Trust him. You know what trust is. You trust people all the time. You know what that means. You know what it's not to trust. You know what it's also like to not trust someone. All Jesus asks of you is that you would trust him. And what we means by this is that you would recognize that you cannot fix this problem on your own. That you are stuck because as long as you continue to think you're your own savior, you're never going to get out of this cycle. But as soon as you own, you know what? Yeah, I'm stuck in this. I need a savior. You reach out to the Lord, and he's there for you. And then you trust him, which means you just simply say, okay, God, what do you got for me today? What do you want me to do? All right, I'm going to do that. And so when you go to work the next day, and that, you know, let's just call her Sharon. Is there a Sharon in the room? Good. Oh, You're Sherry, you're fine. Sharon walks into your office or Sharon walks up to your door or Sharon walks up to you in the the gas station or the grocery store and you're thinking, oh, Sharon, oh, Sharon, I can't stand Sharon. You do this, right? You have this person at work, whether it's Sharon or somebody else, that walks in and every time Sharon grates on you and as soon as Sharon walks in, you fall into this habit right, of bitterness, of frustration. You start counting the minutes Sharon walks out the door when you're free of Sharon. What Jesus says is when Sharon walks in, you are to love your enemies and pray for her. And this is a very significant thing. So if you're saying, well, how do I trust Jesus? You just do what Jesus said. So when Jesus said you are to love Sharon, all you have to do is when Sharon walks in, all you have to do is, nope, we're not going there. Not yet. Thanks for jumping the gun. <laughs> um, all you have to do when Sharon walks in is you have to simply go, "Oh God, I don't have the strength to deal with Sharon." But Lord, I pray that you would allow me to love Sharon as you loved me. It's a mental shift. That's all it is. Do you see what he did? When when Sharon walks in and you start focusing on yourself, when you start focusing on how Sharon's going to impact you, you enter into this cycle. But as soon as you shift and Sharon walks in and you're thinking, oh God, it's Sharon. But you go, Lord, help me to focus on what you have done for me. Help me to love Sharon as you have loved me. That's a completely different path. Now, you can go back into this cycle. Sure, how's that working for you? Or you can try Jesus' way. It's quite significant. That's all we mean by trusting Jesus is recognizing you can't do this on your own and you turn to him. Now, last thing, just as we go into this, Okay. Last thing, because I recognize that in this room there are people who have experienced this life that Jesus Christ offers us. There are people who have experienced this freedom and yet at the same time in your own life, and this is the bulk of us, by the way, this is me too, we still find ourselves slipping into this. Why is that? We've experienced freedom. We've experienced the life that Jesus offers us. We've experienced what it means to be out of this cycle. Why do we continue to slip into this? Because this is our habit. And because when we take our eyes off of Christ, when we forget God, we do the same thing Israel did. When we forget what God has done for us, when we forget who God is, when we forget who we are in Christ, we immediately slip into our habits. Jesus says the way you overcome this is this. This is where we're gonna get to that verse. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to break free of the cycle must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross. What that means is this, is you recognize, using the Sharon example of, I want to go this way. Lord, I don't want to go that way. I'm going I'm I'm to fight that urge. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to deny that urge, and I'm going to do what you told me to do. That's that. Paul puts it this way. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of how God has come and broke this cycle, in view of what Jesus Christ has done for you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, do not fall into the cycle but be transformed, how? How do I get out of this? How? By the renewing of your mind. You see this? It's a mind shift. It's a mind shift. Let me give you some practical examples of this, okay? In my life. I I have grown to a habit now where I've gotten very good at taking Sabbath rest, okay? Um, When I was going through school and I was working full time, you know, 70, 80 hours a week, whatever it is, I felt like I had to work every day. I felt like I had to be doing something every day or I was gonna get behind. I was burning the candle at both ends and I was burning out. And then Pastor Chris, through his wisdom, spoke into my life and he's like, you need to take a, you need to take a Sabbath. And I'm like, no, no, I, I can't take a Sabbath. I have too much to do. And he's like, I don't care. You're taking a Sabbath. And so for one day of week, I, I gave up working. On one day a week, I gave up on school and I gave up on just work, work. And I just, I spent time with my wife. I rested and you're thinking, "Well, how is the math gonna work out and all this stuff? It was crazy. It worked out beautifully because I I started to find space and margin again. I was listening to the word of the Lord. I was experiencing this life. The problem became now, now, after a few years of doing this, I have now begun to see Sabbath as my day. My day. I've already begun to shift this gift that God has given me. I've taken my focus off of God and I've begun to focus on me. And the way I know this is because when I wake up, first thing I wanna do, I wanna play video games. This is my day, how dare anybody interrupt me. Oh, somebody asked me to do something. I don't wanna do something, it's my day. I gotta catch up on my shows, I gotta do this, I gotta read my books, I gotta do this, I gotta get to my Bible time. And I get frustrated. But what I've experienced, and then when Melissa comes home, I'm a jerk, I'm a jerk, because I'm in this habit. My sinful brokenness. But there's other days where I wake up and I may be doing the exact same activities. I may be playing video games, I may be watching TV, I may be reading a book, I may be doing whatever I want to rest on that day. But I simply start that day different. I recognize, God, this is a gift from you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, all, it's a simple mind shift. This is a day from you. My day is so different. I don't mind giving up space to go and help my brother-in-law move. I don't mind giving up space to go and have coffee with a friend. I don't mind when Melissa comes home early and I'm in the middle of a video game level that I really want to finish. I don't mind. I don't mind. it's, It's significant. And that's not by John's power. That is the work of the Spirit. That is me simply focusing on God and allowing him to work in my life. One last thing, and you're already done with me, but I don't care. This thing, this thing, I hate this thing sometimes. I hate this thing. This is my phone. In the morning, one of my first habits, first habits is I reach over and I grab my phone and I read the news. If I do this for about an hour to an hour and a half, you know, I wake up at seven, I got to be at work at 8.30, 9 o'clock, whatever it is, and I'm sitting on here for an hour, I then get stressed. I'm like, oh, I got to run to work. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And I never catch up in my day and I never spend time with God. I completely have my eyes focused somewhere else. I, I, I'm, my whole day is thrown off. When I simply stop and you know, there's nothing wrong with reading the news on your phone, obviously. but when I, I stop and I force myself to get up and I just go and take my shower, go to the bathroom, whatever it is, and I just go, "God, I recognize this is a day you've given me. Allow me to live out of that. Everything's different." Look, that's what it means to have the cycle broken, Church. This book of judges, this is incredibly significant, incredibly significant, because what makes it very clear to us is this: You and I are a forgiven and freed people. We are not like the people of Israel. We're not, we're free. The question is, are we gonna live into it? Or are we gonna continue to fall back into these habits? Church, I just wanna encourage you. Just dream about what it would look like if in the morning you woke up tomorrow and you said, Lord, how do I redirect myself on you? What would that look like? Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. Lord, and we are so grateful for your word. God, we are so grateful that it is not boring, but that it is so engaging. And Lord, as we we read it, we can truly see ourselves in it. And Lord, as Paul says, we, we uh, we find ourselves convicted by your word, challenged, corrected, rebuked. Lord, And at the same time as we read your word, we also learn what it looks like to be righteous, how to live the eternal life that you have offered us. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would come and draw each of us to that place where we are able to receive your gift of life. Lord, I pray that you allow us to identify the habits and the triggers that send us into that spiral, and before we get there, Lord, that we would just be reminded to be focused on who you are and what you have done for us, that we would not forget who you are, and Lord, that out of that space, as we enter into that life, Lord, that people would experience ripples of blessing as they flow from us, as we are more peaceful, more joyful, more purposeful. Lord, this is nothing we can accomplish on our power. Nothing we can accomplish on our power, but we recognize it is solely a gift of you and so we just pray that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.